Hello, good evening and welcome to tonight's 5 by 15. We're so pleased to be back after the summer. I hope you've all had a good break and it's terrific to see so many of you joining us tonight. And we couldn't be more pleased with tonight's two speakers who are Hannah Critchlow, the scientist, and Rowan Williamson, the, uh, Rowan Williams, sorry, the 104th Archbishop of Canterbury. And they're going to be talking together about Hannah's fantastic new book, Joined Up Thinking, The Science of Collective Intelligence and Its Power to Change Our Lives. It couldn't, I don't think, be more timely at a time that we're in right now of hyper-individuality, global conflict, and pressing and really complex issues of climate change and indeed the whole cost of living crisis that we're living through. Hannah argues, though, that everything that is great and good and important that human societies have managed to do have been achieved together collectively, and that we have to do things together in order to flourish. Hannah is no stranger to 5 by 15. She has been involved in some memorable events in the past, including a number of fantastic talks that she did around her previous book on the science of fate. She's currently a neuroscientist at Cambridge. So Dr. Rowan Williams, as I said, is the exile one of the ex-archbishops of Canterbury, but he's also an honorary professor of contemporary Christian thought at Cambridge, as well as being a poet and a scholar. And amazingly, he can speak or read in nine different languages, which is extraordinary. But actually it's his consciousness and sensibility and just sheer brilliance, which makes him such a great person to talk to Hannah tonight about this incredibly important issue. The format is the same as ever with 5 by 15. Our two speakers will talk for about 45 minutes. Then we'll take questions from you, the audience. So do please put them in the Q&A box and Rowan will come to them after they've had a good conversation and I know it will be good. Hannah's book is available through our booksellers, New and Books. You'll see the details in the chat. Uh, please buy it. It's a fantastic read. And with no further ado, I'm now going to hand over to Rowan. And thank you both very, very much for being with us. And I couldn't look forward to anything more than listening to the two of you. Goodbye. Thank you very much indeed, Rosie. It's, it's a real delight to be able to talk to Hannah in this forum, uh, not for the first time. And... It's a book which impressed me enormously and, and delighted me as well. It, it had so much in it that made me feel positive about the future of the conversation around, around science, civilization, and philosophy. But it is, and I suppose this is one reason I like it, it is a very counterintuitive book in some ways. We're sold the message repeatedly that anything worth knowing is something we can find out for ourselves as individuals. We're sold the message that cutting our own swathe, digging into our own position, is something which is inherently valuable. And as Rosie said, we live in a world where actually the, um, the value and good effect of this is not exactly obvious. And one of the things, Hannah, which you're doing here, I think, is not just making what you might call moral noises about how it's much nicer to be collaborative and individualistic, but saying it's actually suicidal not to be cooperative. And we really do not know as individuals in the sense we think we do. We're much more, well, much more tied in to an enterprise which is always mutual, always exploratory of one another, not just of ourselves. And 
am I right in thinking that what you're doing is essentially trying to put that ethical vision on a more solid scientific basis? Yeah, precisely. So um, there's some fascinating work from neuroscience really looking at our behaviour. Um, and neuroscientists have primarily been focused on an individual's behaviour. But more recently, we've been able to look not just at how an individual behaves, um, but also we can delve into individuals' brains as they're working together. And we can see how people collaborate, how they creatively, innovatively problem solve and how they build consensus. And there's some remarkable studies looking at how groups of people, when they're working together really well, you can start to see that the electrical oscillations that are occurring in those individual brains start to align. They start to become in step and they synchronize with each other and that synchronicity can actually start to um, predict how successful that group might be and I, I originally became interested in this idea of collective intelligence through a neuroscience lens when it was a few years ago I was asked to um, help present a BBC um, two program called Family Brain Games with Dara O'Brien um, so this was actually a competitive um, program where different families were pitted against each other and they had to solve different puzzles and do different tasks. It was a little bit like um, a crystal maze challenge. Um, and I started delving into the research on collective intelligence and what neuroscience can tell us about that. And you could use that neuroscience knowledge to predict with 100% accuracy, which family was going to succeed, which family was going to come out as the winners of the program. And that, that information, that pr prediction wasn't based on the individual IQ scores, which we had from all of the members of the families that were participating. It was actually based on something else, a very different factor, which we can talk about um, kind of perhaps later on in this talk. But yeah, the, the idea that... Um, you know, we achieve great things as lone individuals, as lone geniuses. That's that's just it's, just, it's just not how it occurs. You know, ideas hop and take seed from mind to mind. Um, and we build in our intelligence as a group, as a social organism. And there's some fascinating research that's coming out at the moment, looking at how perhaps we're moving away from the individualism of our past and moving towards um, a more collective future. We seem to be undergoing an evolutionary transition to create this almost super connected um, kind of human species mega group that's maybe more akin to a hive of bees or a colony of ants um, so there's lots of scientists from across the world looking at how our intelligence merges and creates greater things when we work together one of the things that's really interesting about that of course is the sheer variety of disciplines you're talking about there's neuroscience there's the actual observation social observation of groups there's the is the issue around the collective life of bees or ants or whatever. And it's as if the scientific world is much more open to what I would think of as a more imaginative and humanistic approach than many people think of. They, they tend to assume that when you're talking about causes in the scientific world, you're talking about mechanisms in a very narrow sense. Each one of us is a little clockwork box that's, that's sort of wound up and ticking along. And what you're saying is there's something very different going on because the ways in which we attune to one another mm -hmm. 
are not, again, not just matters of vague feeling. They really are neurologically grounded. Exactly. And there's some really lovely studies looking not just at the brain synchronicity, um, looking at how people's oscillations actually become in step with each other, but also looking at how things like our emotions can be contagiously Mm. transmitted between individuals. So we know, for example, that if I smile at you, your face is likely um, or more than likely (laughs) to start smiling back. We start mimicking each other Mm. and there's mirror neural circuits within the brain that are implicated in that process. But there's also things looking at how, for example, um, So we're starting to get neural signatures within the brain for really complex behaviours like feelings of compassion or feelings of guilt. Um, And we can start to see how moral values can converge between individuals. So just simply the act of me spending time with you, Rowan, what you would see when you, if we took if you took us into a lab is that my moral values would actually start to become closer, more closely aligned with yours. And unfortunately, yours might become slightly more closer aligned with me. Though <laughs> 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 so some people have a stronger influence, they might be more charismatic. And so mm. they're actually more likely to induce that transmission rather than receive it. But there's some, uh, yeah, some absolutely fascinating work looking at how groups become unified in ways of thinking Mm. um, for good or for bad. Mm. And of course, one of the implications of this is that some of the language we often hear about the need for for strong leadership comes to look a bit bit silly in this environment, because part of what, again, what I found so forceful and compelling in your book was the dismantling of that myth of not just the solitary genius, but the solitary, usually alpha male leader who barrels or bulldozes through issues and provides leadership with a capital L. And part of what you're saying, if I read you correctly, is that that's a completely flawed reading of how successful decision-making gets made in groups. Yeah, exactly. So when we look, for example, at a a group, what we can see is that more successful groups will have a a, a large number of people that have a great diversity in thinking. So they might have genetic diversity. So they might be prone to different ways of thinking as a result of the genes that they're given from their mums and their fathers. Um, But they also might have um, kind of a, a cognitive diversity that might be a result of their experiences from their early years experiences and and the different culmination of events that have affected their circuitry within their brain and that goes on to then affect how they perceive the world um, and how they will then react to it Um, so when we recruit a diverse team um, then we can actually offer up we can harness some of that um, intelligence that might be on offer within that team and going back to the family brain games when we look at how we could possibly try and predict which family would win this competitive program but how they could win based on how they're working together successfully as a team what you find is that it's not a family that's got a strict leader in place that's you know hierarchically domineering the conversation actually what you find that the 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 best predictor for a group success is the gender ratio So the higher the number of females within a group, generally speaking, the more effective that group will be at problem solving and innovatively and creatively kind of um, coming up with some solution and working towards a goal. And that's not because males are inherently less intelligent. It's something to do with females' social perceptiveness and ability to listen and take turns. And so what I discuss in the book is how, you know, first of all, 
um, perhaps we need to make some changes in how society is structured so that we can more effectively tap into that that resource, that brain power resource that's on offer in females. Because at the moment, you know, undoubtedly we're faced as a species with a number of existential challenges, whether it's the geopolitical instability or climate change issues or the threat of the next pandemic. Um, but so there's tapping into the female um, kind of brain resource, but there's also making sure that males are brought up valuing um turn-taking and listening so there's exercises within the book again that talk about how we can practice listening to each other and, and reflecting on things before we contribute to a group um, and how we can start to instill that from a very young age in in the family um family setting so this isn't a kind of neurological determinism there are there are things we can do about it Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's due to, you know, synaptic plasticity. So the ability of our brain to change as a, as a result of all of our experiences um, that, that happen throughout mm. our lives. Some of the research that I found fascinating when I first came across it some years ago was what um, Sue Gerhardt published about the experience of love in small children and how if certain pathways were not activated within the first couple of years, that was a good predictor of dysfunctionality, depression, violence in, in later life. And again, she's not saying this is a kind of determining of the future, but we really need to keep our eyes very wide open to how we, how we predetermine our relations with, with our children, what, what doors we inadvertently close for them, and how we just have to have a high level of self-awareness of what we're making possible and making impossible for children at those very, very formative stages. Yeah, exactly. And there's a huge amount of plasticity of brain changes, of brain connections that are taking place within that first few mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. um, and neuroscience hasn't just got something to say about how individuals work together or how groups of people work together, or even looking at how, you know, much larger communities or perhaps even societies work together at this current time. We're also looking now um, at how collective intelligence takes place across time zones. So looking at how the effect of, for example, um, trauma can affect not, not just that individual, but can also go on to be transmitted across generations. And there's some quite um, compelling research that's been coming out of neuroscience studies and genetic studies recently looking at how not the genetic code of an individual that's been affected by trauma um, is altered. So it's not the, the DNA sequence itself, but a traumatic event can actually seems to change the confirmation, the shape of that DNA um, in the sperm. This is the studies that have really been looking at um, uh, that. And that causes um, enzymes to be accessing those genes in a different way so that they're expressed in different ways, which can then go on to affect the baby, the embryo, and how that neural circuitry is laid down, and then could possibly go on to affect generations down the line. So there's been some very compelling work um, that's taken place looking at this epigenetic inheritance of trauma and how it can be transmitted across generations in um, mice. But then there's also very compelling uh, data that's coming out at looking at descendants of um, survivors from the Holocaust and also looking at LOS um, kind of um, villages in um, Lahore. So when we sometimes talk about there being a, a kind of almost a moral muscle memory 
in our, our brains, it's more than a metaphor. Something is actually inscribed, recorded, and, and shapes not only ourselves, but whatever is organically related to us in, in terms of childbearing and so on. Yeah, exactly. So with descendants, so for example, with the um, examples of the Holocaust, yes. there's yeah. some studies looking at how descendants of the Holocaust have altered, epigenetically yeah. altered expression of cortisol, which is a chemical of the brain mm -hmm. that's involved in um, the stress response. Mm. Um, so they might have a more a hyperactivated flight or fight response, for example, or mm. feel more, more um, be more susceptible to threats from their environment, mm. which when you think about it, that's um, an evolutionary a sensible strategy yes, to have. Yes. and it's sensible really that biologically we can store these memories not just in our minds from our neural circuitry but these memories might be, be be able to be passed on through across generations and this occurs um not through imitation or through storytelling but through this biological route as well and if we're talking about and you do touch on this in the book about the healing of of trauma in that context, how you get beyond that in inherited sort of slant of how we see and experience things. How does that work? How does it get back on track, you might say? It's not just about communication or imitation. So how might we think about addressing that level of trauma? So there's some lovely work looking at how we can help to instill a greater resilience within our brains um, and to boost synaptic plasticity so that recovery might be possible. Generally speaking, it's easiest at source, so in the original person rather than the descendant. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's also you know, recent work that's looking at, for example, um, diet and how we can help our gut microbiome because there's lots of nerve cells within our gut and across our body that send signals to our brain that we might not be consciously aware of. So for example, we know that there's something in the region of 11 million bytes a second of data that enters our nervous system. So every single second, there's huge amounts of data from the outside world, um, but we're not consciously aware of all of that. We're only consciously aware of, as estimated, something in the region of 30 to 40 bytes a second so a lot of information is subliminally stored within our bodies and being able to tap into that and access this that information with awareness can help um, and there's different things that we can do so for example um, I know that you meditate and spend uh, practice spending time each day um, listening to some of those that information that's held within your body um, so dedicating some time to that for example could possibly help um, but also making sure that your brain can create new ways of thinking. So exercise helps with the birth of new brain cells um, and then interacting with other people, um, lots of different types of people and conversing with them is thought to help those new nerve cells integrate within new circuits of the mind so that you can forge new ways of thinking. But there's also some, you know, quite new research looking at the power of opening your mind um, and starting to heal and think in different ways using um, psychedelics. So there's some research looking at how um, small doses of psychedelics might be able to kind of 
remove any associations or shortcuts in information processing that might be going on within your brain as a result of your experiences that you've accrued through life. So it almost strips the brain to a naive childlike brain. Mm. And you can have a look in the um, when you're looking down in a brain scanner of someone that's taken a very small amount of psychedelics, and you can see that their neural networks are all opening up and working with um, great activity in a very similar way to a childlike brain. So that helps to prevent rumination or negative loops of thinking but again that's quite preliminary data sure the implication of this of course is that the body itself is not just something we carry around it's something we think with it's not a kind of hazmat suit which we surround our our mind with but that we are always dependent on the intelligence of the body at every level and the sort of crude distinctions we draw between mind and body seem more and more unrealistic as we pursue this line. Exactly. And then just the, you know, the, the crude distinctions that we make between me as an individual, as a brain or a body, and you as an individual brain mm. body, you know, um, if I'm feeling a particular way, there might be a chemical that's secreted in my sweat. So to give you the subconscious clue that actually I might be feeling stress and perhaps you need to be on the alert for dangers. There's also some fantastic research that's coming out in the field of interception. So how we pick up, pick up on cues from other people. So if we were given, if we were presented with just a video of two people in real time, they're not giving off any verbal cues, they're not saying anything, but they're just silently kind of... Um, standing there and you can see them blinking and you're given a, ra- a heartbeat and you've got to try and predict which person's heartbeat it is. Most people can very accurately um, predict uh, and kind of guess what your heartbeat might be. And again, there's lots of information that's being given off that goes on to affect the people around us. Mm-hmm. So for example, just a little, you know, a little, uh, there's a lovely study that shows how um, if my neighbor is happy and I'm, you know, I know my neighbor, um, then the chances of me being happy as well is boosted by 26%. So our moods are very much affected and our, you know, the way that we are and our physiology can be very affected by people around us. So yes, we we think with our bodies, we don't just think with our, our minds. We think, therefore, as part of a, a material world that we are irreducibly stuck into. We are really bound in with that. And once again, the old model of the isolated brain, or the isolated human mind, surveying the passive world around is something that's not been very good for us and seems more and more to be an absurdity in terms of what science is is delivering to us. Precisely. And actually, when we look at um, IQ scores, which have been uh, kind of, you know, assessed and collected for the last 100 years at least, what we can see is that generally the human species has had something like a three or five point increase every decade since the end of the Second World War. But then um, around the 1970s, it reached a peak and started to decline. And that decline has actually corresponded, it seems to have occurred at around the same time that there's been a general rise in um, more competitive individualism, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I think that's that's a very interesting way of looking at how we are we we our intelligence suffers when we work in in isolation and I think that was you know that was 
quite obvious to a lot of people as a result of the pandemic. Mm. Um, you know, we may have gone into a state of mental fog or we had difficulty mm. conversing with other people and we lost some of our social skills. And maybe we, you know, maybe we struggled to get up in the morning. I mean, some people actually thrived during the pandemic. But generally speaking, what we've seen is that IQ levels fell during the pandemic as a result of the enforced isolation. And as different countries came in and out of the pandemic, you could see differences in intelligence levels, not just cognitive function, but also mood of people. So the general men mental well-being declined as people were more in more isolation, um, as well as their cognitive function falling. And then you know, the countries that came out of isolation slightly faster, the IQ levels increased or reverberated back slightly um slightly faster and but not for those who were still shielding of course there's a very interesting set of questions here about education and what a a really good educational environment is like um i've often thought that one of one of the first things we need to take on board in thinking about education seriously is how we get people to recognize that the questions they're asking aren't the only questions to be asked the answers they come up with aren't the only answers to be had, and that to get anything like a sustainable picture of the environment we're in, we just have to learn to listen to other people's questions and other people's answers. And that suggests, a, I think, a, a very diverse ecology, to use a word quite deliberately here, in the educational world, which I'm not quite sure we've got at the moment. In fact, I'm rather sure we haven't. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like the um, there's a meme that's been going around where some one person is on one side of a line staring at a number and the other person is on the other side. And one person, sure, it's a six that's written down. And the person on the other side is like, no, it's definitely a nine. Mm -hmm. And they're arguing rather than actually trying to see mm -hmm. see the, the answer from the different perspectives. And I think education. I mean, part of its key role, especially primary school education, is to enable peer interaction um, and learning from peers and discussing from peers and communicating and collaborating and creating together. Um, and, you know, there's there's evidence that the current educational system, which is focused more on ranking and competition between students within a group, because usually only a certain number of students will be able to get the very high achieving grades. Um, and so there is a certain amount of competition between them. And and that's doing a disservice, I think, to the intelligence that we could be accessing mm -hmm. um, from our species. And I think, you know, even Cambridge University, where I'm based, um, it's, it's um, you know, it's buying into that competitive system because it's looking at grades. But it's also, you know, it has a very vigorous um interview system where we sit down and we discuss with students it is a very lengthy process which takes up a, a high number of academics kind of um time during mm -hmm. a three week period or two week period during the interview process but that's trying to assess how students might be communicating um and have some flexibility of thinking and then obviously the the system within the university is very much based on super small supervision so again there's more discussion there's more time for deliberation and reflection and um kind of taking on board other people's perspectives but then the collegiate system is looking at 
many different disciplines coming together so that the students are housed within a place where there's engineers, there's mathematicians, there's historians, there's neuroscientists and there's chemists, mm. um, to name just a few. Um, and everybody gets to discuss their point of view and their perspective based on their experiences quite freely. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there's definitely a role for education focusing more or highlighting more the importance of communication and collaboration and teamwork and listening within their system. So we ought to be investing more in whatever it is that makes education a more conversational process, because I, I worry deeply at the moment that most of the rhetoric we hear about education is as if there's a set of very simple skills, we stuff them into containers, we wind them up, and we send them out into the world to make money. And that's it. And the notion that education might have something to do with that broader intelligence of feelings, of body, of relationship, slips off the radar as soon as children are out of primary education, and very often before them too. And it seems as if we're really putting a rod in pickle for our own backs with, with all that. Yeah, certainly. I think, um, I think also... So we were kind of stuck in the, myself and my son were stuck in Australia during the pandemic, which was an unusual situation because we were meant to be flying back in um, Easter 2020. But at that point, the international borders and even the state borders had closed down. Um, and luckily, my son was eligible for the Australian state school system there because of his dual nationality. And so he's actually started primary school within the Australian system. And, and he said to me, he misses it because there was a huge amount of space there within the school, because the school grounds were colossal for the number of students. Um, but also there was much more of an emphasis on playing and working together mm. rather than, it may be just a transition because he's now in an older year group, but he's only mm. in year, year, he's about to enter year two. But he, yeah, he, he does seem to, to think that there is much more sitting down and learning as an individual and being you know tested and he does get tested um, and compared with other students mm. within the class the research seems to be pretty much in one direction on this I've, I've been wrestling recently with ian mcgilchrist's massive book the matter with things which is about the lateral functions of the brain and the different um, different skills that the two hemispheres have of um, if you like close focus and broad horizon scanning and Ian's view is, of course, that our whole culture has been basically kidnapped by a right brain mentality, which, which is all about close focus problem solving and is increasingly incapable of making the connections we need to, to keep us going. Um, and of course, he writes about that in terms of the, uh, the clinical evidence on stroke patients, um, the, the different effects you observe in people who've had strokes affecting different hemispheres of the brain. Um, so, as I said, the, the research does seem to be flowing in one direction. What does it take to get our culture and our politics to notice this? Well, so um, some of the research that you're mentioning is still quite controversial within the neuroscience mm. community but it's robust like mm. the data that you're talking about is quite robust and there's some lovely studies and I don't I'm not suggesting that this is the answer but there's some lovely studies showing that if we apply um 
an electric current or a magnetic stimulation to one side of the hemisphere to inhibit it so mm. that the other side can then start sparking mm. with activity that's associated with more collaborative mm. thinking and creative thinking and innovative lateral problem solving, then actually you do see an, a result. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all start to don helmets that will kind of <laughs> induce mm. us mm. to kind of activate particular hemispheres of the brain so that we can think in particular ways. Um, but unfortunately, oh, I mean, so this is another reason that I wanted to write this book is because there's millions and millions of dollars currently being invested in neuroengineering technologies that might be able to help us to collaborate and think together more effectively. So you might have heard of Elon Musk's um, yeah. Neuralink endeavors. Um, so he's been looking at putting brain trip chips in different organisms so there's the monkey that was able to play a video game pong with its mind and there was also Gertrude the pig that had a chip embedded and you could watch the electrical oscillations as she kind of sniffed her way and explored the ground but there's not just Elon Musk and um, Zuckerberg from Facebook who are working on these types of um, neural man-machine interfaces to bring together human intelligence and computational artificial intelligence and possibly have telepathy between different individuals as well. But there's also some work um, from other scientists, for example, looking at how we can take the electrical signature of a particular memory make a copy of that electrical signature and then imprint it onto a recipient's brain and that can boost their learning. So it can help them to think in a new way, a little bit more easily, a little bit more effectively. Um, and there's other work looking at, for example, how we can start to, again, using these kind of magnetic electric helmets, start to join up people's brains so that they can start to communicate with each other and problem solve. And in the example, the researchers gave them a task of um, answering 20 questions and guessing what an object was. Um, so there's all of these types of research uh, kind of advances that are being made in neuroengineering. And it and it poses the possibility that maybe one day in the future, we might be able to create some kind of organic biological supercomputer that could enlist millions of brains that could try and work together and solve problems that possibly couldn't even be posed in our individual binary form. But I'm not saying that really we should be going down that route. Um, I think instead it might be worthwhile to take some of the neuroscience findings, looking at how we could listen a little bit more effectively, how we can boost our brain synchronicity. So simple things like, um, you know, things that like choir singing, things that you do in a chapel that helps to, <laughs> helps people's brainwaves literally synchronize and build that sense of cohesion so that they can learn together a little bit more effectively and innovate and problem solve more effectively. But things also like, um, you may have noticed that there's quite a lot of um, mass marathons going on across the world. And that's possibly in response to the fact that, you know, we're also living, it's in some, some people believe that we're living during a loneliness pandemic and then there's an increased mm. feeling of loneliness and with individuals. Um, and we know that, you know, mass synchronized exercise also helps brains to synchronize in their electrical oscillations. So it's doing little things like that, you know, setting up groups within our community so that we can sing together, so that we can exercise together, taking time to listen, 
making sure that we are not going down the path of creating really harmful tribal dynamics of Mm. echo chambers Mm. and dominance dynamics, but also instead, you know, cultivating more of a curiosity in people's viewpoints when their viewpoints are very different to ours. So there's some lovely work actually going on at Newcastle University, um, looking at how we can all tolerate ambiguity um, and uncertainty a little bit better and the games that we can play with each other uh, to try and help with that process. Because it can be sometimes very difficult to try and talk to someone that's got a totally different viewpoint a totally different perspective and a totally different way of answering a problem to you mm-hmm. but there's but they're coming from one standpoint and because of the way that our brains work i think it's quite helpful to realize that each of us is slightly wrong in the way that we perceive reality and slightly wrong in the way that we problem solve our way out of it and there's some really interesting work from chris frith who's at university college london looking at how when you bring people different individuals together actually and allow them to discuss mm. freely what the situation is they're much more likely to get to a representative accurate version of reality than any mm. individual by themselves what's interesting there i think is is the way in which and in the book certainly as well you you underline the fact that there are quite a few rather prosaic things we can do to to improve all this we don't have to wait for the messianic hopes of elon musk or or whoever And that reassures me a bit, because when I hear about large-scale technological manipulation, I turn to the chapter in the book on the dark side of of all this, the the way in which our capacity to to tune in can, well, it isn't always good news in the sense that we can also be, um, we can be manipulated, we can be controlled, we can be sucked into something Mm -hmm. um, if someone has a, a large agenda of control. And... Do you want to say a bit more about that shadow side of of all this? Of yeah, I mean, there's been oh, there's been propaganda that's occurred throughout, you know, human civilization, probably, mm. and 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 it taps into our uh, the way that our brain responds to fear. So what happens is if you are filled with lots of fearful kind of triggers within the environment, then the amygdala, which is a brain region that's implicated in the fear response, will light up with bright activity. Generally speaking, that activity and all that connectivity that's going on with the amygdala in response to the environment will occur at the expense of another region of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, which is kind of further towards the front. And it's that region that's involved in more collaborative thinking, looking at how we can horizon scan to the future Mm. and Mm. collaborate with other people. So anything that tries to tap into that and hyperactivate that fear response within our brain, which is, you know, a huge amount of propaganda throughout, you know, history. That's what it that's what it tries to do. It tries to weaken down individuals so that they then can't collaborate and problem solve their way out of something for the future. So I think we need we need to be aware of that. Um, and also there's been some lovely studies looking at how this doesn't have to happen, you know, through just the printed press or through an individual being in your direct sphere. There's some studies looking at, for example, in PNAS, which is a scientific journal, there was a mass study that was done in 2014, um, looking at something in the region of, I think it was over half a million individuals. And the researchers tweaked their Facebook news feeds so that they were either weighted to contain more negative 
emotional content or more positive emotional content. And they could see that suddenly the users started to respond, mm. emulating what they were given in their newsfeed. So there was um, kind of a contagious spread of negativity or fear, which could really dampen down the way that our brains can think in a more cathedral way, looking to the future. Um, so I think it's to, to be aware of that. And there's also, you know, going back to this idea of neuroengineering our way out of it. Um, some people have been positing the possibility of us all taking moral enhancers so maybe all being sprayed with oxytocin so that we start to feel more empathy for each other and we can start to take on board other people's perspectives. And perhaps this is something that, you know, like, well, like we have fluoride in the water, perhaps we should have moral enhancers within the water system as well so that we can just work together more effectively because we do have so many existential challenges that we're currently faced with and we do need to harness the, few, the full intelligence that's on offer. Um, I'm not sure that's the answer, especially since some of the, <laughs> I mean, that was, that was posited by Julian Savalesco, who's a professor at Oxford University and an absolutely fa fantastic guy. And I think he was positing it, um, you know, as a, as a general thought exercise. But something to be aware of here is that some of the agents that are, are, are promoted as being um, helping to garner more empathy across people. So there's when couples go into couples counselling, maybe they're disagreeing and they're having trouble kind of reaching a consensus in their group of two. Then some studies have looked at the effect of like uh, giving an intranasal spray of oxytocin, which is a chemical in the brain that's involved in bonding, pair bonding. And they found that this can be very effective for couples that would otherwise possibly be warring. So they suddenly start to have more empathy for each other and greater understanding. And they can sit down and discuss what issues are going on um, with, with a greater understanding. But However, there's also some other studies looking at how oxytocin has a very dark side. So it helps with that direct pair bonding, but very much at the expense mm -hmm. of outsiders who might be not part of that particular group. So, yeah, so there's the <laughs> there's difficulty there. It's it's complicated, isn't it? Because really what this comes down to is we we can't do without some kind of self-awareness, self-questioning about how this is going. It's a constant feedback of saying, um, what what are the, what's the cost of this this particular step? Um, what are the risks? Um, are we getting complacent about this? All the things which again a, a good educated literate self-aware society ought to be fostering and back to education again really i suppose yes. yeah. but i'm conscious hannah that time's getting on we've got some questions lining up in the q a panel so okay if we um, take a few questions at this stage and i'll see what i can do by way of doing justice to as many as i can here uh just let me call these up a really interesting question here. Um, how should groups address abusive members who are deceitful about their intentions and who can be charismatic and recruit others in the group to target their victims? Um, yes, I mean, that's a very important point, especially when you think about the fact that sometimes very charismatic people um, so there's some lovely studies looking at how if you plant a cheater within a group of people who are meant to be working together, then basically what will happen is the cheater will start to sway the group very effectively. Mm -hmm. And we've all seen this within different groups, within different communities um, or 
different possibly family members or teams that we've worked in you know the um the one person can have a huge sway on the way that a group is 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 working what the dynamic is and what the moral kind of viewpoint of it is so i think it's helpful um to lay down a structure a, um of the goals of the group and mm. the ethos of it um and calling out anyone who might be doing that as well and making sure that bullying behavior isn't accepted um and there's some love there's some really interesting studies look, looking at how the bystander effect so we are all part of a group we all contribute to it um and if we're apathetic and don't help to call out any behaviors that are not acceptable even though they might not be directly affecting us then actually we are complicit in in some ways in enabling it and so therefore being part of a community where people can actively call out and are getting involved mm. in making sure that um that that doesn't happen mm. um there's some there are, there is some worrying research that's come out of um some studies looking at how um antidepressants ssris can actually increase apathy within an individual um so obviously antidepressants can have positive effects for individuals because perhaps they are unable to function uh without them but there is also data showing that possibly it causes greater apathy within a group as well. And if we think about the fact that something of the region of 17% of UK adults are currently being prescribed antidepressants, I think perhaps we need to question the effect of these antidepressants on different behaviours. Comes back to the, the point really that we, we need critical feedback constantly and anything that depresses critical feedback is going to be a bit of a, a, bit of a problem. But um, here's another question, this time more on the social and political level. There's a lot of interest in the ideas of deliberative democracy, citizens' assemblies, citizens' juries, panels, and so on, to improve the quality and effectiveness of governance and decision-making. It sounds to me like your analysis is aligned with these movements, um, but I'd be interested to know what you think of them. Yeah, I mean, um, you just need to look at Wikipedia, for example, to see how uh, collective intelligence can work. So everybody is there contributing to particular ideas and themes and writing up their own and adding in and inserting or deleting their own um, kind of ideas. And that process has generated this incredible resource of intelligence from everybody contributing from around the world. And the judicial system, you know, the jury system is based on collective intelligence. Um, so I think, yes, I'm uh, I'm in support of it. I think it's it's good. It's good for us to all recognise that we all hold bias. We all make shortcuts mm. within our thinking, and that is a result of our genetic diversity, and it's a result of our experience diversity. And the way that you can start to effectively balance out that bias so that you get a more representative view of the world and come to a better collective decision is by recruiting a diverse team. Mm -hmm that you can start to balance out some of those problems that we each have individually within our brains. Here's a question which I think you've already touched on a bit. What does this mean for things like working from home? Does that increase isolation and prevent working together closely? What are the costs of working from home, really? 
Oh, well, so uh, the research on this is quite new. Um, so when I was talking about the brain synchronicity, there's this amazing researcher called Vicky Leong, who's based in Singapore. Um, and she originally did these studies looking at parent-child interactions. So she'd pair up uh, the child and a one-year-old baby um, with the parent and measure their electrical oscillations and see that if the parent was in a good mood, and looking direct eye to eye contact, then the baby's brain would start to oscillate and they mm. would start to learn together more effectively. Mm. And the crucial thing here actually is that there's some really nice research showing that it wasn't just the baby that was causing the timestamp of the electrical oscillations. Quite often the baby would be the dominant one. So there was a lot of to and froing mm. um, between that electrical oscillations in much the same way that you have a conversation. So even with a young baby and a parent, there's that relationship mm. um, of communication that's going on. And you can see that within the brain times. But what she also found is that if you start to move that um, to via a screen, you don't get the same degree of brain synchronicity and you don't get the same degree of learning. So that study came out pre-pandemic. Since then, there's been some lovely work by Anita Woolley, who's based in America, and some others who are based um, at MIT, Thomas Malone, his group. Um, and what they've looked at is how even groups of people, when they're working remotely, um, they can work as innovatively and they can problem solve and form a group together as effectively. So there's a possibility that, again, this is quite new research. There's a possibility that the last couple of years of the pandemic has almost shifted the way that our brain works due to this region, way that we have this amazing brain plasticity and we can learn in response to different environmental changes so that we can now start to work together more effectively, even online. That obviously relates a little bit to um, another question here about the impact of social media. Um, does that make us more competitive? Does that undercut some of the things which you've put before us as a part of the value of thinking together? Um, I think the really important thing about social media is that really something that we kind of forget is that we're the curator of our social media. Mm. We're the ones that are picking how our newsfeed is going to be in some ways, because we could mm. just, we could eject ourselves from a group. We could not subscribe to it. We could unfollow. We choose who we're following. And so, um, that can that's a, you know that can be a good thing in that it can but it, in that you know you could have lots of conversations that you wouldn't normally be having with other people mm -hmm. or it can form echo chambers mm -hmm. uh, where lots of misinformation is spread and i think um maybe we need to be mindful of the fact that we should open our news feeds a little bit more but not display huge amounts of outrage um, or be rude to each other in a way that perhaps we wouldn't <laughs> face to face mm -hmm. because there is that extra bit of distance and anonymity uh, that social media provides. Groups like AA have thrived precisely because they have no leader. How could this model be expanded because it's so different from how the rest of the world turns? Yeah, so there's some lovely work looking at how healing as a collective um, can be incredibly effective. Um, and if we go back to Australia, so not just looking at collective healing, but also how groups form memories together. And I always think of memories as you know, a very individual poignant thing that kind of creates in, in the end 
through the culmination of memories that we have, uh, individuality. But when we look at Aboriginal Indigenous um, populations, the way that they create memories together is actually as a collective. So they'll sit down or they'll go on a walkabout together and start to form a story about different things. And then they'll start to embed those memories within that narrative. And there was a lovely study that came out of um, a professor at Melbourne, I think it was Melbourne University, or is based in Melbourne, who's also um, kind of Indigenous. And he was looking at his Queensland tribe and he started teaching medical students this memory technique so walking around uh, mm. and memorizing things together as a story as part of the community and he compared that to the memory palace thing that you might mm. have heard mm. of through Sherlock Holmes for example <laughs> the, the BBC program where he, where he does it more as an individual um, or there's no technique for memory formation what they found is that basically it was much more effective to form memories as part of a group so group therapy um, cannot also help the healing process but it can also help us to lay down more memories effectively and they're going to start using that process within the highly competitive domain of um, medicine which is you know something that we might in the west traditionally think of as much more of an individualistic sure. kind of um, yeah career turning to one area where our collective lack of intelligence is is pretty rapidly killing us there's a question here, here who says i'd be very interested to hear what our speakers say about how to deal with the climate emergency from this point of view hmm. large question <laughs> um i know that i know that you've got some uh thoughts on that and you were quite vocal about Cambridge University divesting from fossil fuels. I've um, had some thoughts over the years yes um, and I think it, it is certainly one of those areas where we're reaping the, the whirlwind of not just an individualist but what you might call a, a corporately individualist attitude. Well um, I can acquire what I need to acquire, want to acquire, my group or my nation can acquire what it needs even my species can acquire what it needs, but there's no sense of what that great novelist Doris Lessing called the need with a capital N, which is, if you like, the, the intrinsic need for balance and mutuality in the entire system that we inhabit, mm. a need for a real um, ecological imagination, if you like. And it seems to me that unless we can really tackle that sense of partisan acquisitiveness, whether it's the individual the group, or even the species, unless we can tackle that at root, mm. we really are in trouble. And the, the real contribution I think that your book makes, Hannah, is, as I said at the beginning, to put all this on a foundation of not just, it's nicer to be nice about things, but this really is how we work. Mm. And we can't even, even begin to be human in a durable, sustainable way unless we take this on board. It's, I mean, it's interesting. There's a lot of, um, there's a there's a growing social urgency and appreciation that we need to start addressing this. Um, and I've been invited to give talks to lots of different, uh, lots of different business forums mm. on um, environmental measures and social responsibility. Um, and I think it will be interesting to see how this all plays out. Um, currently, the way that our economic system is set up, it seems to really be driven by short-term consumerism. 
and that's feeding into um, a reward circuit in the brain mm. that's very much evolutionary ingrained in us to seek out reward and to be motivated by particular things whether it's high sugar kind of content whether it's consuming the next iphone whether it's you know it's it's you know these different things that we want to have in the short term that give us feelings of um happiness or satisfaction so i I think as individuals we need to start putting that immediate reward system in 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 check and i also you know there's there's other things that hijack that reward circuit very effectively and that's drugs of abuse which is why people can get um you know uh, compulsively addicted to them which mm. which is very problematic so anything that we can do to start putting that system in balance mm. and actually recalibrating our brains so that we can start becoming more motivated by thinking about our contribution to the community to other individuals um, and to the future generations as well and to descendants mm. and And I think part of that is going to be, you know, a required legislative change where future generations are actually um, considered within policies as having a legal right, a legal standing. And there's some really interesting work in that sphere as well. So um, Roman Kajernak, who's at Oxford, has Mm. written a book called The Good Ancestor, which Mm, is actually on that that, um, kind of stuff, which is good. And of course, in Wales, we do have the future generations legislation, which attempts to um, embed this in, in national policy in, in the Welsh Senate. But I was thinking as you were talking also of the way in which really all the, the spiritual traditions of the world have ways of helping us take a critical perspective on our immediate reward system mm. and make us step back from the instant emotional high or gratification and say, just a moment, where's this going? And what's it doing to me? And am I free in regard to it? And how does it relate to the entire, again, ecology of the world I'm in, human and non-human and divine for that matter? So, yeah, I I think there's a a real convergence here of of themes that you're talking about and some of what I'm I'm more used to talking about in my my own area. Um, oh, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? If you look across different religions, you can see that what they're doing is they're basically tapping into into some of the new neuroscience that we're only we're only just discovering from neuroscience on how we can start to behave better and to behave more intelligently. There's a there's a lot of those tricks that have been embedded within the history of human civilizations, religious beliefs, and the the rituals that they've been set they've set up. That's right. Well, we're coming to the end of our time, unfortunately. There are, there are several more questions that I would really love to pick up. And I wonder if I can just take um, two of them and see if we can have some thoughts to wind up the discussion. One is about the educational system. What are we going to do with the exam system? Surely we need some kind of marker, one questioner asks. And another Again, not unrelated question is, where does imagination fit into your thinking? There are some fabulous initiatives bringing together large groups of people to imagine differently and collectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, moral imagination is something that's that's flagged here. Thoughts on that, Hannah? So there's a lovely study um, that came out of Japan. So uh, they... 
asked individuals to don ceremonial robes so that they could start to imagine themselves as time lords that were living in the future in this beautiful utopia. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that those people that donned these ceremonial robes and just that that, that kind of uh, costume helped them to imagine themselves in the future, they were much more likely to make decisions that were more community-based, mm. that were kind of have had other groups' interests at mm. heart and were thinking more of themselves as old age pensioners, but also thinking of um, the next generations mm. as well. So they're much more progressive in terms of their um, kind of policies mm. Mm. on climate change and health uh, and community. Um, so anything that we can do to help foster more imagination, whether it's by donning particular clothes <laughs> uh, and, and fostering it, within children as well you know through mm, mm. through reading fiction uh, mm. or, or going to see plays going to mm. theater mm. or um going on art walks so that we can start to share perspectives and, and imagine a, a greater amount um in terms of what we could do to change education i've done yeah i'm not entirely sure it's how long have you got question really, isn't it? And unfortunately, we haven't got very long. So I must pass back to Rosie at this point. It's thank been a great both. joy, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you, Rowan. Thank you. Well, thank you both so much from everyone at 5 by 15. That has just been the best hour I've had in such a long time. So many ideas. And yes, I could see how many more questions were coming in. And Hannah, that was um, that's just the most extraordinarily brilliant set of um, ideas and thoughts. And Rowan, thank you so much for all your wisdom in this discussion. Please buy the book um, and, you know, think about all these things. They could not be more important. Um, please, uh, thank you very much for joining us tonight. I'm sorry for the questions we couldn't get to. Um, it's great to be back with the new series of 5 by 15 next week, next Monday. We very pleased that um, Andrea Wolf will be joining us with Kirsty Lang with Andrea's new book about Yenna and the Renaissance called The Magnificent Rebels. Please come and join us then. But in the meantime, buy Hannah's book, um, pass this recording on to friends, because this is a really important stuff about how we're going to get through the next cri the big crisis that faces us all. We really have to do it together. So thank you for your time. Have a good evening. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. Good night.